You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Yonatan Grad. The Melvin J. and Geraldine L. Glimsher Assistant Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, September 25th. Uh, Dr. Grad, do you have any opening remarks? Happy to just jump right into questions. All right. Thank you, Dr. Grad. First question. Hi, Yonatan. Thanks for doing this. Um, well, my question has to do with pandemic trajectory. Uh, when I've spoken to some epidemiologists, I guess a month ago, who felt that a second wave would be hitting the sort of Massachusetts, New England, and generally maybe the country too later this fall. Um, so I was wondering if, you know, now that we have a bit more data on how the fall is going, is the second second wave still look like it's coming? And how will we know if we're in a second wave? So a <clears throat> first, um, first comment is that, uh, you know, while we use the metaphor of wave, these, um, it's important to remember that uh, um, the, our experience with the pandemic is very much dependent on our choices. Uh, so to the extent that there are uh, individuals who are susceptible to infection and opportunity for the virus to transmit uh, among them, um, we will see transmission. So a lot of this really has to do with, um, you know, when we will see a rise or when we see a rise in cases, that's really a reflection of our providing an opportunity for the virus to transmit. So, um, you know, it's not like uh, weather patterns or waves in the ocean where they come at some predictable, uh, um, in some predictable pattern. It really is dependent on the choices that we make as individuals and as, as communities. And I think some of the anticipation of a rise in cases had to do with changes in restrictions where we're starting to see places um, open up, uh, meaning um, fewer uh, um, social distancing uh, interventions or now starting to see bars and, and restaurants open, opportunities, in other words, for the virus to transmit among susceptible individuals. I think. Um, that, that may have been why some people were anticipating that we would see a rise of cases, a rise in cases, at least in, in, in this area. Um, in addition, the rise in cases in other places in the country uh, would provide opportunities for introductions into uh, this area as people traveled, right? So as people started to take planes or drive in different places, um, get exposed and bring it back into Massachusetts or the Northeast, uh, more broadly, um, there would be uh, um, more opportunities for, for the virus to transmit. Uh, and that could lead to an increase in cases, which uh, I think just, you know, we kind of call that increase in cases a second wave, but it's, it's really, we're just seeing opportunities for the virus to transmit. I think that the, the, uh, what we're seeing uh, um, both in Boston and in many other places is that uh, the increase in cases right now may well be attributable to, um, uh, to a couple of things. The most prominent, at least in, it seems to me in the media right now, is at the start of in-person uh, classes at colleges and universities. Uh, I think there have been um, a number of high profile outbreaks at 
some of these institutions of higher education. Uh, and, and again, that that is a reflection of the factors that I was describing before. You're having people come from around the country. I think I had seen a figure that, at least for Boston, 20% of the undergraduate students come from California, Texas, and Florida, um, places that at least until recently had had um, a fairly high uh, positive test rate. Uh, and then, you know, these are college students who do what college students do, and uh, there are fraternity parties and uh, other social events where, um, in the absence of masking and distancing, um, again, there's opportunity for the virus to spread. So, um, so my sense is that that uh, that may be one of the factors in uh, why we're seeing uh, increases in cases in a number of places where it had been fairly well suppressed uh, recently. Um, and then again, the um, kind of movement towards uh, more uh, um, opening of different parts of uh, the economy. You know, again, seeing in-person or seeing restaurants open, bars open, and so on. Uh, that also um, will help accelerate spread. Do you have another question? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so basically, the answer is it depends on <laughs> what we do in the yes. fall. Yeah, that's um, right. Okay, as, um, as as has always been the case, right? I mean, this is in some ways it's been the refrain from the beginning, right? We were talking about social distancing interventions um, back in uh, the late winter, early spring, as the the way to flatten the curve, and it still is. Right. Um, okay, so I guess the my follow up question is: if we see kind of cases really start to rise um, in this region again like it did, or maybe not exactly like it did last spring, but in, in, in sort of a similar kind of trajectory. Do you, would you expect that our lives would go back to the way they were in April and March when everything was really shut down, businesses were closed and everyone was staying home? Uh, not necessarily. I think it really depends on how, how widespread the cases are and how quickly they're detected uh, and how, um, uh, how well we can identify where the cases are taking place. If uh, our testing, um, which you know, is, is much better than it was back in the spring, um, can help us identify exactly where the cases are taking place uh, or the communities that are at risk, we may be able to um, uh, proceed with um, much more localized interventions uh, and increased monitoring. Um, and I, I think that the implementation of uh, more focused um, uh, interventions rather than the uh, blunt instrument of community quarantine um, could uh, help suppress continued transmission so long as we have sufficient testing, monitoring, and opportunities for uh, contact tracing, case identification, isolation, and quarantine. Um, so sorry, if you, if you don't mind me asking, do you feel like in, in the state we, we, we do have that infrastructure in place to, to be able to use more localized interventions? I, I, think, um, there, I, think, I think we do. Uh, I think it, it, there's, as, as always, there's room for improvement, uh, but I think uh, it's certainly better than it was back in the spring. And also the, the, um, the number 
of cases uh, that we're seeing now is, is far lower than what we we're seeing in the spring. And that actually makes monitoring uh, and the various interventions that I mentioned uh, much easier to enact. Um, so, uh, you know, I think while the numbers remain low, even as we're starting to see an increase, the opportunities for more directed uh, interventions are far better than if we had uh, large numbers. Uh, that, that if we got to the point of widespread, uh, um, widespread disease um, and transmission, uh, I think it would be much harder to have focused uh, interventions. It would be an indication that those really had failed. Uh, and then we would need um, uh, more kind of blunt instrument community quarantine. But I, I think we're in a much better position now to be able to avoid having to do that. Great, thanks so much. Uh, next uh, question. Hi, thanks so much for doing this. My question is also about um, the trajectory of disease. Um, I obviously cover universities and have been talking with public health officials in counties and states around the country this week where there are big universities that saw big jumps in numbers of cases um, in August mostly. Um, talked to people in um, the county where the University of Iowa is and where Chapel Hill is and a few others. Um, and I was asking them if they've seen that, that spread um, go beyond the campus communities into the surrounding areas. Um, for the most part, they told me that it's kind of hard to measure, but when, but they were, have been looking at age, the ages of the people that are testing positive. And while they did see in their counties big jumps in the 18 to 24-year-old age range, most of them, I mean, all of them actually, that were able to answer the question said that they didn't see this, they weren't detecting spread beyond the campus community. Um, so beyond that age group. Um, so this seems like it could be good news about um, university openings, but I want to be cautious about that and ask if, you know, you think it sounds, um, it sounds good to you, what, why that might be that the spread is not, is not going beyond that group yet, and um, if, if maybe it's just too soon to tell, or if we should see this as a, as a real sign of the university's sort of success in containing, in containing it. Uh, it's hard for me to speak to those specific instances because I don't know uh, those numbers exactly, but in general, um, you know, I would expect that um, if those, uh, that, that, that there will be spread in communities um, as a function of how much um, the college campuses are actually, and, and those populations are integrated together with the uh, surrounding or neighboring communities. So, you know, if the college students are in dormitories and those are all separated from the communities in which they reside and there really aren't that many opportunities for those individuals to um, interact with the, the with their neighbors, then I think that lowers the likelihood of spread or slows um, the appearance of those cases in the communities. And then it also has to do with what types of interventions the communities themselves have in place in terms of masking, distancing, and so on. Um, how 
whether any introductions into the community will continue to spread and, and cause community-based outbreaks. So a lot of it depends on the, the, the details, both of um, you know, the structure of, of the college campuses uh, with regard to their neighboring communities and what types of interventions their communities uh, have in place. So um, a kind of inverse problem uh, um, or, or situation to, to what you're describing um, could be seen with like the, the NBA bubble. So even as cases were going um, up in and actually reaching fairly high levels in uh, Orlando and Orange County in Florida, um, the bubble, which had fairly extensive testing and, and uh, um, other types of interventions in place to help prevent transmission really hasn't seen, hasn't seen it. So, you know, it is, um, it is uh, there um, really about how these, these different entities interact with one another. Um, to the point of, you know, the age groups uh, and, and what to learn from there, what to expect. In Florida over the summer, as another example, uh, there was a claim by the governor uh, and, and others, as I recall, um, that, oh no, don't worry, we're just seeing cases in the communities and young people. Uh, and there we did see spread into, oh, sorry, it looks like my connection was, was on. Um, was fluttering there, but so we, we did see spread into older individuals. I mean, it's just that's also the nature of how communities are structured. Uh, young people interact with other people, and eventually we could see spread into older individuals. So I would say, um, you know, that that uh, um, that we still have a bit to wait to see if um, there's community spread, and if there is, I would anticipate that we would start to see cases in older age groups as well. Did you have a follow-up? Um, no, that's really helpful. And it, it sounds like it seems to you like this is a possibility that the universities have, depending on their mitigation efforts and their community's mitigation efforts, it's possible that they could have contained it, but it kind of remains to be seen. You, you'd want to look more carefully at the specific data. I, I think that that's right. It really, it depends on each of the different scenarios and, and how of what the efforts are on each campus and the interaction with between the campus and the local community and as well the community's mitigation efforts. Yeah. Okay, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks so much for doing this. Um, I, I wanted to ask a, a question about the vaccines. We know that um, HHS and CDC are, are building all kinds of new uh, data technology systems. There's, there's um, the VAM, V-A-M-S, VAMS that they call it. There's something, there's a, another data lake that they are building to sort of house all this information about um, who has gotten which dose and how many doses they've received. Uh, there's something they're calling Operation Tiberius. Um, and I, I'm just wondering if this is in your wheelhouse, are you at all concerned or should we be concerned that there's a whole bunch of very big IT systems coming online at once that are going to be super important in the opening days of, of getting a vaccine when we when you know the supply doesn't equal the demand. Uh, I, I think the question about the um, IT infrastructure to monitor who has received what dose uh, or w which vaccine and how many doses. Um, is 
is a critical one uh, to be able to monitor um, the, the uh, effectiveness of vaccines, of, of each of the candidate vaccines, particularly as I think, as you mentioned, we have a number of different vaccines that are uh, expected to uh, make an appearance around the same time. So um, yeah, that that uh, um, IT infrastructure is is going to be critical. Uh, and I think as as we've seen um, uh, in in many circumstances, uh, bringing online new IT systems is often fraught with challenges. Um, uh, it's it seems like the the um, expecting. Uh, then one should expect to see um, uh, challenges um, with with any new IT system. So it's it's uh, um, you know I think it will be a, another challenge we'll have to figure out how to overcome. One related point to that um, on privacy issues, the the uh, HHS has said that they are going to want to de-identify the data that states would send them identifiable data and then the CDC and, and HHS would de-identify it at their end. Do you see any privacy concerns or, or uh, potential political issues with states turning over whole boatloads of patient data um, to the Trump administration? I don't know the details of, of what you're referring to, so it's hard for me to, again, speak to specifics if, if they're if it's just um, about who's received a vaccine uh, and um, uh, or whether it includes other health information. And of course that will depend on um, whatever our vaccine prioritization, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, strategy uh, is. So, so if there's, as we start with limited numbers of doses, if we want to prioritize um, uh, essential workers, um, for example, uh, then you know, there are questions about uh, who those essential workers are, uh, and especially in this uh, environment when we're worried about um, well, the questions around immigration, uh, I, I think, you know, and, and we've seen that the first most heavily impacted communities tend to be uh, those uh, vulnerable communities, uh, often ones including um, uh, people who have concerns about immigration. Um, it, it could absolutely be problematic. I, I don't know, um, even, and even there, that's not about even the, the health records, that's just about who the people are uh, and um, their uh, interactions with the rest of, of um, the community, society. Uh, and and their their profession and their risk, so I I think that there uh, absolutely could be um, uh, concerns around uh, vulnerable communities um, if that kind of information uh, is being directed uh, in um, uh, identifiable way uh, to the federal government. Thank you very much. Yep. Before we go to the next question. Uh, Dr. Grodd had an op-ed come out in the Washington Post today, and I was including a link to that in the uh, in the chat. If anybody'd like to take a look at that and ask him some questions about that as well. Uh, 
in fact, uh, there's, there's a section in there, um, just going to, to your question, uh, that um, is about the importance of IT infrastructure in vaccine distribution and how, you know, the, the, uh, the, the uh, underfunding, the chronic underfunding of local and state public health systems uh, has made even monitoring uh, uh, COVID-19 so challenging. Uh, how are we really going to get in place something so quickly to monitor uh, vaccine distribution? I, I think it's a really important and challenging question. Um, next question. Good morning. Um, well, first of all, that's really interesting because I uh, am reporting a story about how public health departments have gotten approximately 2% of the funding they need to distribute a COVID vaccine, so I'll definitely check that out. Um, but I wanted to ask about vaccine prioritization. Um, it seems like coming out of the CDC ACIP meeting earlier this week that there was consensus that healthcare workers should be first, but um, some questions about whether the next priority would be essential workers or people at high risk of severe disease. Um, and I was curious if you have thoughts on which would be most appropriate. Yeah, I think um, there, there are, um, it, it really has to do with um, a few things, including um, what, what your goal is. So in um, work, we recently um, uh, put out as a, as a preprint, it's a, a manuscript that's currently in review uh, and undergoing peer review. Um, <clears throat> we looked at um, what the vaccine distribution should look like if you want to minimize um, uh, deaths and if you wanted to minimize cases. And if you want to minimize deaths, then under most assumptions about what uh, the efficacy of a vaccine is, um, particularly in the at-risk populations, such as the elderly, um, then you know, what you should do if you want to, again, if you want to limit mortality is vaccinate those people at highest risk of dying. And so um, that seems fairly standard, or it really seemed to be the the conclusion looking uh, across a range of different assumptions. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, if the goal is to um, reduce deaths, that's uh, a high priority population. If the goal is to reduce cases, then it, there's more variation depending on the demographics and the interactions uh, um, among individuals. Uh, but it seems like, uh, at least in the US, targeting younger individuals to uh, the people who we anticipate are most important in, in spread uh, would, would be the way to go. So um, yeah, so it's, it, and then, you know, kind of more, you know, to, to the uh, actual logistics of implementation, you know, defining, uh, you know, what constitutes an essential worker becomes another becomes another challenge right? how, how do we decide exactly who those individuals are um, but uh, <clears throat> that uh, um, that I think is, is going to be another you know it's certainly a, a, it's, it's not an unreasonable strategy it just depends on what we what we want to accomplish most quickly depending on the amounts uh, amount of vaccine that's first available and I put a link to that uh, preprint in the chat as well. 
And um, any thoughts on whether, you know, limiting deaths or limiting cases is most appropriate? I think that's a, a decision we as a as a society need to come to. It seems to me like, you know, you, you want to limit, I mean, my, my sense is uh, move most quickly to limit deaths uh, uh, first, but that's, um, you know, I think we need to think, uh, um, and I think that there are uh, a number of different bodies, including not only the ACIP, but the National uh, Academy of Medicine and other places that are thinking through exactly these questions to try to arrive at some kind of consensus uh, so that um, you include not only epidemiologists and virologists, um, vaccinologists, but also ethicists, so that you can come up with um, a, uh, a reasoned argument for whatever the distribution or prioritization strategy should be. Um, but I see Barry's on the call. I'm curious if Barry has, has thoughts on this too. I don't know if Barry still is on the call. I pulled him off. Uh, Barry, are you oh. still there? He's, he's... I may have... Um... I may have pulled him away and distracted him. I see. Okay. No, I, I, <laughs> oh, I'm here and you did distract me. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. What's the question? The question was was about. Or actually, I'll, uh, if you want to ask your question again. Oh sure. We were just talking about um, vaccine prioritization and how that could depend on whether our priority is um, minimizing cases or minimizing deaths. And I asked, you know which do you think is, uh, should be the priority? So, a, a small diversion. Um, the way you get rid of, in my view, of uh, an epidemic is the key is to interrupt transmission. And the head of the committee um, at the national, the co-chair of the committee of the National Academy, says, coming out with these recommendations, is Bill Fagey, who's the guy who developed the strategy to interrupt transmission of uh, smallpox, um, which was one of the great public health achievements where you didn't have to vaccinate everybody. You had to wait till the village reported and then get only the people in those village to interrupt transmission. One of the things to jump to the answer to your question, the priority of the report from the National Academy surprising to me, focused almost entirely on preventing severe consequences of infection and death. And the focus on how you would get rid of transmission was barely touched upon. And I think you can obviously understand for priorities, the elderly, um, perhaps healthcare workers uh, would get the most obvious priority in people's minds. Uh, it is unlikely that they're the two groups involved in major transmission, as uh, Yanathan has said. So we are very likely to be in a circumstance where the vaccine will prevent people from getting severe illness and dying. There is no requirement in the protocols to measure infectivity, that is, uh, nasal swabs looking for virus. Um, and so we won't know. Uh, as far as I can tell, unless the companies additionally want to look at it, whether we are blocking the ability to transmit in the people who receive the vaccine, which means we'll have um, the virus around for a long time 
both because it may not block transmission, although it saves people from being sick and dying, and also because it's likely unlikely to be 100% effective, so some people that get the vaccine will still get sick. Jonathan, is that okay? Yeah, that's great. Um, I Thank think you. Your, your point about um, what we'll learn about the, the um, impact of the vaccine on transmission is a key one. Um, if we look at, uh, for example, what, what was observed for the AstraZeneca University of Oxford vaccine in, in trials in, in, um, in macaques, so these are the, the initial animal studies, my understanding is that it uh, helped prevent symptoms, uh, but that the animals, when challenged with a virus after vaccination, were still able to shed virus. Right? So uh, the, and we call this that, um, you know, the, the distinction uh, is the direct effect uh, of a vaccine, which is reducing symptoms or severe manifestations of disease, and the indirect, which is in, in helping to uh, reduce transmission and spread. Um, and, and Barry, you're totally right. I think that the, the trials are designed to assess uh, just um, the, the severe manifestations uh, and whether it prevents symptoms and not so much whether people can be infected and shed uh, virus. So um, yeah, I think that's a, a really important point. Thanks. Okay, great. Um, does anybody else have any follow-up questions? Uh, thank you, yes. Uh, so um, I was wondering if, I know if uh, both Jonathan and Barry could answer this question, what are you doing now in your normal lives um, that uh, you might not have done back in April or, or May or something? Um, like how many, like what, what is the riskiest things that you're doing or what sort of precautions are you still taking? Barry, do you wanna? <laughs> um, well, Jonathan moved chairs. <laughs> it's true. I moved from, from one corner of the room to another corner of the room. Uh, you know, I, I, I think um, there's, uh, I think what, really it seemed like the, the, the ideal time uh, to, to travel or um, to see people, uh, of course, over the summer as both case counts were so low in this area uh, and um, uh, the weather was accommodating, right? It was a chance to see people, uh, you know, have meals outdoors and so on. Uh, and those were, those were things that, uh, um, that well, I, I didn't travel, but, but at least in, in terms of seeing people and having meals outdoors, um, uh, that was something that uh, that I was doing and that I hadn't been doing in the spring. Um, so, you know, I, but I think, um, uh, you know, it is, you know, as it's going to be a concern um, as we move into colder weather uh, and it becomes harder and harder to, uh, um, to have social time with people outdoors, uh, you know how, how we're going to get um, the social interactions that 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 we need um, as as social creatures. So uh, I think that um, yeah, that's a, 
I hope that we can continue to maintain uh, through testing uh, and monitoring um, good control over the virus in, in this area. But, but I think the questions of how we're going to interact when um, it becomes harder and harder to do so outdoors uh, will be a challenging one. Dr. Bloom, are you still there? Yeah. Okay. So I would, I, I fully support um, Yonatan's answer. And I, I, I guess from a point of view of conditioning the public, the question is often asked, when can we get back to normal, whatever normal was before COVID? And I think what you're hearing from both of us, it's, that's going to be a long time. Um, until there's rapid testing and everybody can test themselves on a regular basis and has the will to lock themselves up if there's a possibility they may be trans able to transmit or have been recently infected until everybody on an airplane and people traveling across states um, can be sure they're not bringing with them the infection. Um, I think we're going to be in a different state than we were before COVID for quite a long time, with or without a vaccine. Did you have any other follow-up questions? No, I, I think that's it. Thank you for thank you for doing this. Thank you for your questions. This concludes the September twenty fifth press conference.